This is a Federal News Network podcast. By any measure, software vendor SolarWinds was a high flyer with many federal customers for its IT management software. Now the company says it's nearly recovered from the 2020 sunburst hack that sent federal agencies fleeing and became part of the cybersecurity vernacular. We get more now from SolarWinds Chief Information Security Officer, Tim Brown. Mr. Brown, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And just briefly review what SolarWinds software does. There's a lot of products, but why was it so central to the whole supply chain question at that point? Yeah, so SolarWinds, you know, it's the leader in network management, systems management. You know, we have a lot of customers, and we end up being in the middle of network. So, you know, that's why essentially we were a target for this attack. Why it's called a supply chain attack in this way is a couple of things. First off, that it didn't attack our source control system, it attacked the build system in line. So that's how we framed it, a supply chain attack. Then our customers framed it a supply chain attack simply because we were in the middle of you know everything that they do in their environments. Right. So it's almost like a utility got hacked in effect. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because, you know, and, you know, we see other things coming up right now, Log4J, for example, and others. So supply chain issues are not going to go away. You know, we just ended up being one of the first out there public supply chain issues like this. And did all of the federal customers at that point just quit using SolarWinds, or did a few of them hang around anyway? No, many hung around anyway. So, you know, we had great partnership with CISA during the initial cycle. And what we did is we came up with a plan, essentially, and agreed on an approach. You know, the recommendation was that if you're not running an affected version, if you're running an older version, you know, then you can upgrade to the latest version. If you were running a version that was tainted, but you didn't see secondary attacks, then the idea was to look at your environment, make sure that it didn't see those secondary attacks, and then upgrade. If you were running one of the affected versions and you saw a secondary attack, then it was investigate your environment and move forward from there. So CISA was a great partner with those recommendations. Uh, then many federal agencies took those recommendations and went with them. And what do you feel that you learned about hacking and defenses against this type of thing? Because it seems like every month we learn of a new attack vector, such as the log4j. Nobody thought that log files could be the launch pad for attacks. Yeah, one of the things about, yeah, the threat actor is extremely patient. It's extremely thoughtful in what they do and both the way they attacked us and the code that they put into the environment. Things like it wouldn't run inside of us. Things like it waited 14 days before it started. In our environment, very quiet, very stealthy, affected three builds and then left. So I think one of the things we have to realize is this level of attack is going to become more common. It's going to be utilized for ransomware. It's going to be utilized by nation states. It's going to be utilized by others because, you know, the payoff at the end can be large. So it's important to recognize that's the level of attacker that we have in place. And was your first call to Homeland Security? Because I've heard of this kind of thing before. There was a well-known cyber company quite a number of years ago. Their first call when hacked was to the National Security Agency because of the nature of what they manufactured. Yeah. So, you know, it was kind of the first days a little blur, but we had FBI law enforcement on on the lines. We had CISA on the lines. We had others on the lines. 
and really just looking at, okay, so how do we kind of move forward? The agencies themselves had different missions, right? Uh, FBI took a lot of data and were looking at attribution and looking at other things where, you know, CISA was looking at how they can amplify the truth, right? How they can say, this is what you should do. So a lot of good partnership right at the beginning, and it morphed from days one to you know where we are today. We're speaking with Tim Brown. He's the Chief Information Security Officer at SolarWinds, and you've made some corporate readjustments in light of what happened back then, including a new government relationship, government affairs type of person to have on hand. Tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in technology-wise, we made a lot of changes. We became much more resilient to these types of attacks. We have a pretty innovative triple-build environment that really no one does. And the reason for that was simply to be able to be more resilient to attacks. You know, now you need three people to collude in order to affect our bills. Our new government affairs organization has really helped us get in front of, you know, our federal agencies, talk to them about what we've done, talk to them about moving forward, give assistance for those who have not moved forward to move forward. The new institution really opens up additional doors. You know, one of the things that our customers and our general customers really love our products. They've done, you know, well for them for many, many, many years, and they'd like to continue using them. So it's just a matter of letting them know that we are more resilient to attack than most, that we have been able to examine our environment for seven, eight months straight with other folks involved like KPMG and CrowdStrike in our midst for you know five months. And then, you know, we've made changes to products, we've made changes to people, that we just are a lot stronger and more resilient to these types of sophisticated attacks. And getting back to that triple build environment that you mentioned, is that a technique or a methodology that you're making public so that anyone could adopt it? Yeah, we actually open sourced a lot of it. So when you look at a triple build, what that means is we build a developer pipeline, a verification pipeline, a validation pipeline. No one person has access to all three. Therefore, and we compare the results before we ship. So all of those builds need to match. They don't match, we don't ship. So collusion would be necessary to affect the build system in the future. So we look at that as basically looking at an assumed breach model. And we did open source that. We open sourced how to compare builds and how to really go through that process of triple builds. And what has been the government reaction? I understand some of the agencies that had abandoned the company are saying, well, maybe we should do business again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When they look at alternatives, some have looked at alternatives, have come back, some have never left. But just the outreach that we've done has been appreciated. We've tried to be as transparent and visible about what happened and about what we've been doing. And, you know, that approach has worked well in both the private sector and the public sector. You know, this type of event, it's terrible when it occurs. And, you know, if we can have learnings from it, if we can help both the government, public and private sector learn and move forward and become more resilient, you know, then we all win. So, you know, that's what we've been attempting to do. And with that, we have had a good number of customers either come back, turn us back on and those types of things. And would you say then that you didn't feel like the government was punitive when you notified them and started cooperating with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency they didn't send you over to the Federal Trade Commission or something or that type of kind of punitive reaction? 
You know, I think they've been kind of respectful for this type of an event can happen with that type of threat actor, right? And it really depends on the actions that you take. And it's very important to note is that, you know, maybe if our products weren't so useful, if our products weren't so good in the environment and so important to the environment, you know, then they may have decided, okay, we're just going to, you know, switch to others. But very difficult to switch to others, you know, with the products that they are integral to what they do and, you know, how they run. So in general, I think they're appreciative of the model that we've done. And, you know, they hope that others would go through and do similar functions. Tim Brown is Chief Information Security Officer at Solar Winds. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to the triple build process at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, 
I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.